I should take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew, the 15th chapter. Matthew chapter 15. As we've been studying the 15th chapter of Matthew, we've been discovering biblical truths concerning the subject of religion. Folks often say that when talking to other people, one of the subjects you should stay away from is religion. Uh, Apparently no one told Jesus that. Because in this passage, he gives one of the most crucial principles we could ever learn regarding the topic of religion and whose opinion on the subject should be even given greater authority than that Probably uh, no one's opinion would be greater than that of the Son of God. So as you recall, this chapter uh, is a story of conflict. It started with uh, the Pharisees confronting Jesus and his disciples because they failed to keep a religious tradition. The, The Pharisees were seeking to rebuke him for failing to keep their religious traditions, but all they did was subject themselves to his rebuke for having turned their tradition into a transgression. We saw that in verses 1 through 9. So the first thing this passage taught us was that the broad subject of religion is that we must be alert against the danger that comes with man-made religious traditions. They can become so important sometimes to us that they actually lead us to disobey God's direct commandments. And how important it is for us to remember this. How tragic, though, that so few do. Only God knows how many people have been spiritually shipwrecked by religious traditions. A second thing that Jesus' words teach us about man-made systems of religion concerns the teachers of those systems. There's great spiritual danger in following teachers and leaders who set up systems of tradition that are in contradiction to the clear teaching of God's Word. And so they're contrary to the way of Christ. Jesus, as you remember, went over the heads of the religious leaders of the day, spoke directly to the crowds that followed Him, countered the things that those scribes and Pharisees taught. We saw that in verses 10 and 11. And his disciples were alarmed when they heard him speak these words, and they no doubt saw the anger, the outrage on the faces of the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 12 through 14. And so here we see another principle warning about religion. We must beware of listening to the spiritual teaching and following the spiritual leading of someone who is unspiritual. Because those false teachers show themselves first by the way or by the fact that they offer a system of supposed spirituality, but it's contrary to the clear teaching of the scriptures, and so it leads us away from obedient fellowship with Christ, and then second, by the fact that they were offended and angered when their false teaching teaching was challenged. So Jesus gives us a warning that if faithfully followed, uh, would save people from eternity of misery. Don't follow someone who doesn't know where they're going. Such people, we 
uh, saw were blind leaders of the blind, teachers of error who walked in darkness and who are arrogant in their denial about their spiritual condition. They were heading for a pit of destruction. And those who follow their path will also fall into destruction with them. Well, that leads us finally then to the last lesson here in chapter 15 that Jesus teaches us about religion. And in many ways, it's the most important. It's the lesson that stands behind the other things that Jesus has said in this passage about religious traditions and the religious leaders who demand that those traditions be followed. It has to do with what I would suggest is one of the most fundamental of all religious questions. It is a question that in some manner all man-made religions seek to answer. It may in fact be the fundamental question regarding the whole nature of man's relationship to God. It is the question of defilement. What is it that truly makes a woman or a man unclean before a holy God? And what must that man or woman do to become pure in his sight? Now remember the context. The context is always important. The Pharisees and scribes were defending a religious tradition. They were saying that it defiled someone to eat food without first washing their hands in a particular ceremonial manner. They were defending the idea that their that religious purity before God had to do with external things. But Jesus responded to that argument by saying in clear and bold terms, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. That's in verse 11. Jesus was in effect saying, you scribes and Pharisees say that a man or woman's uh, woman is defiled before God when they don't wash their hands according to the rules that you have made up for yourselves. But I say to all that, you have things going in the wrong direction. You say that a man defiled by what goes into the mouth. I, the Son of Man, declare to all that a man is defiled by what comes out of the mouth. Now I believe that what Jesus said to the crowds, by implication also to the scribes and Pharisees, was an extraordinary, stunning thing. It was, in fact, so shocking to the normal, natural, human, religious impulse that the disciples simply had to ask Jesus about more about it. And so, uh, if you go to the book of Mark, it tells us in his account that all the disciples wanted to ask Jesus about this, but obviously, they often, as they often did, they didn't do it. They said... Hey, Peter, you go do it. Uh, You're the bold one. Uh, You ask him. And so in this one simple, straightforward principle, Jesus renders all man-made religious systems, along with their traditions and the teachers who advocate them, utterly ineffective to meet the real needs of people. Jesus' words demand a radical change to our religious outlook. He's teaching us that true defilement before God is not a matter of external things, not a a matter of ceremonial washings or particular habits of diet. If defilement truly came through those things, then purity before God would be a matter that we could do something about on our own. All we'd have to do is keep the rules, and we'd be fine. Instead, Jesus' words show us that true defilement of a person before God comes from 
that which is already inside that person. And this change of perspective make, uh, takes defilement out of the realm of something that we can fix in our own power. It puts us in a position of having to cry out to God helplessly for His saving grace, pleading that He would deliver us from our defilement and make us pure in His sight. And so as we look at this morning's passage here, uh, the first uh, thing that we, uh, we want to notice is a hard principle to accept. A hard principle to accept. We see in chapter 15, beginning in verse 15, it says, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Now I wonder if you detect, as I do, and I, I don't know if this is really something that uh, is legitimate, but here maybe a bit of agitation on the part of the Lord. I know that the Lord was perfect and He didn't have any faults, but He almost seems like He's just a little bit disturbed sometimes with His disciples. And I'm sure He's disturbed with me. So He answers this question here, and Peter uh, uh, came to Him and said, Explain this parable to us. And it just seems that Jesus seems a little impatient, although he's very patient. He says, are you also still without understanding? Now, obviously, they were without understanding. Why else would they ask him to explain what he said? And on the face of it, they did the right thing to go to him. If they don't understand something, then go to Jesus and ask him, please explain this to us. You see, if you want to understand what Jesus means by what He says, what better thing to do than go to Jesus and ask? Ask and you shall receive, the Bible tells us. But Jesus' manner of answering suggests that something was wrong in their asking. Jesus places the emphasis there on the state of being when they asked, literally, still, or even now, are ye also yet without understanding? Uh, it's as if he expected them to be beyond having to ask this question by now. Now, don't let that shock you too much. There are times when Jesus was clearly unhappy with the place the disciples were in terms of their understanding. In the next chapter, we'll, we'll see there that he performed a second miracle of the feeding of the multitudes of people. He got into a boat, he sailed away with his disciples, and yet in the context of this miracle there in chapter 16 the disciples uh, didn't understand him when he said take heed and beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the sadducees uh, they took that as a rebuke because they had forgotten to bring bread they'd forgotten their lunch that day uh, they should have known by that point that bread is not a problem for jesus and so the, he had to rebuke them because they still were not understanding he said, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not understand, neither remember? How is it that ye do not understand? And I can't fault the disciples too much about this because I suspect there are many more times than I'd like to admit when the Lord, after He's done for all He's done for me in my life, after all He's taught me about Himself, would say to me, O Daryl, you of little faith. 
Can it be you just don't get it yet? Even still, even now, are you also without understanding? What was it that the disciples were struggling with? I think there were some clues here. First of all, it's a principle, not a parable. A principle, not a parable. Notice verse 15. Peter calls what Jesus says in verse 11 a parable. The word parable literally means to, uh, to something to be thrown down uh, together with something else. It's a story or it's a word picture that Jesus paints. It's a snapshot, if you please, of everyday life. There's an old term, snapshot, that he used to illustrate a spiritual truth. But Jesus' words in verse 11 do not constitute a parable at all. They instead constitute a clear, plainly spoken spiritual principle. No one in the context of what the Pharisees said could have walked away with a mystery on their hands, struggling to decipher Jesus' hidden words. Rather, it was a hard saying. Not a hidden one, but it was a hard one. I suspect that his words were so clear that Peter sought to maybe take an edge off of them and kind of tone down things. And he said, Lord, uh, could you explain to us uh, um, this parable? But it wasn't a parable. It's a principle. He's very clear about that. Secondly, an inward attitude not an outward action. An inward attitude, not an outward action. Now, I don't know if Jesus really ever got frustrated. Again, that's uh, one of those things you just uh, you wonder about. But He does observe that they are not yet up to the point of understanding. It, it was as if they didn't have an excuse for their confusion. They should have known better. They had, after all, heard Jesus teaching on many occasions, particularly his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they have heard Jesus in that sermon repeatedly point to the outward, the external observance of the law that the Pharisees and the scribes had focused on, and then hear him articulate the true spirit of the law that goes beyond the mere externals. They would have heard him say back in Chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Or maybe they should have remembered what he said when he said, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Or maybe they should have remembered when he said, Ye have heard that it hath been said of by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all. Let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. So clearly, Jesus had taught them. He had taught them that God's concern was not with just what was going on on the outside. Not following the letter of the law, but rather what was happening in the inner man. The keeping of the spirit of the law from the heart 
They should not have been shocked or surprised when Jesus taught them that a man doesn't defile by, isn't defiled by mere externals, but what's going on inside. And so he was talking about an inward attitude, not an outward action. Thirdly, there's righteous thinking, not religious thinking. When I say righteous, I mean godly, or how God thinks. Notice that Jesus goes out of his way to specify the disciples in his words to them. He says, are ye also yet without understanding? And in speaking this way, he's placing them in the same character category as the Pharisees and the scribes in the terms of their presuppositions. In other words, they, even they, were still thinking like the scribes and the Pharisees. Now Peter, along with all the other disciples, were of course Jews. Uh, They had grown up under the instruction of the laws of Moses as they were taught by the scribes and Pharisees. They had been raised under strict dietary principles, traditions of ceremonial washings. And when Jesus made the declaration that in reality it's not which goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, they came as, that came as an utterly new thing to them, to them. A radical departure from all that they had been taught. I think it's interesting that later on in the New Testament when Peter was about uh, to be given a missionary call to go to the home of a Gentile and share the gospel with him, the Lord had to break him free of the rigid adherence to traditions of ceremonial cleanness. The Lord, you may remember, put Peter in a trance and gave him a vision of a sheet descending from the sky. And when that sheet opened up, it contains all kinds of animals. They were unclean for the Jewish person to eat. And the Lord said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter actually argued with the Lord in that vision. He said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And at that time, in fact, three times in a row, the Lord had to tell Peter, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And that's what the Lord had to teach Peter then. But at the time of this passage here, our text this morning, the Lord has not yet given that vision to Peter. But Peter's response during the vision shows us what a struggle that Jesus' words must have presented to him in in this text this morning. All of this suggests that the principle that Jesus is teaching us in this morning's passage, is difficult for most people to grasp. It's hard. I think it's hard for people today who've been living in religion all their lives. It's hard for them to accept. It's a hard pill for most people to swallow. Because if defilement comes from things outside of myself, then I can achieve purity before God by keeping from those things and following the rules. But if defilement comes from within myself, then there's nothing I can do to help myself. I'm utterly at the mercy of God's grace. Secondly, we see a principle that requires a change in our focus. Look at verse 17. He goes on to say, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in a mouth goeth into the belly, belly and is cast out into the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth 
come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. From out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Jesus' words here completely flip things in another direction than we are naturally inclined to think. He leads our focus away, first of all, from the external. The external. It says in verse 17 there, He asked them, Do not ye understand whatsoever entereth in the mouth, goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught? Now for the Jewish people at this time, certain foods, of course, were forbidden. Jesus was introducing a new era in God's program for His people, and Peter would be later shown the time would come that Jewish dietary prohibitions would be removed. All the foods would be permitted. But though the Mosaic dietary laws uh, still applied to the Jewish people, what the Pharisees had done was to add traditions to the laws of God. Traditions that demanded certain ceremonial cleanings and washings and the effort to put a fence around the law, so to speak, and to keep people from ceremonial defilement. They developed an elaborate set of rules about washing. They overemphasized the principle of cleanliness to the point that eating anything with an unwashed hand resulted as much defilement as a Jewish man had eaten forbidden foods. Now, without being too graphic here, uh, Jesus' words show us that such defilement through actual food itself is impossible. Whatever food someone puts in their mouth went into their gastric system and was processed in such a way that it was good and needful, and what was not good was expelled. Even if someone were to get dirt in their food, you know, a phenomenon, by the way, that anyone who has ever done any camping in the woods knows all about. It's pretty hard to keep your food completely clean, isn't it? Out there in the woods. The dirt doesn't stay inside that person's body. Even if someone were to eat with unwashed hands, it would not defile them. Not spiritually. And this, by the way, is a very freeing principle here. God, in His grace, has given us a great deal of latitude with it respect to rules and regulations about external things. To be very frank, you can go for days without washing your hands. You can eat whatever food you want and it will not affect your soul before God one little bit. Now, if you don't wash your hands for the whole day, though, it will affect whether or not I come over to your place when you invite me to eat for dinner. But that's a different matter. So Jesus' words lead us, our focus away from the externals to a more important thing, and that is the heart. We see this beginning in verse 18. Jesus here specifies things which proceed out of the mouth, that is, words. Simply as a contrast to whatever enters into the mouth, that is food. Try to keep your kids to learn how to keep the food in, not out the mouth. Words are among those things that are expression. That's what comes out of the mouth. But its focus here is larger than just simply words. In Matthew chapter 12, 
In verse 35, it says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And so Jesus goes on to show why it is that the things that come out of our mouths defile us. He describes seven expressions of evil, certainly not an exhaustive list, but enough to show the darkness that's within us. Number one, he says, For out of the mouth proceed evil thoughts. Verse 19. That expresses a broad category. But all evil words first spring forth from the evil meditations and reasoning. And then as it as if he follows the pattern of the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the commandments six through nine in order. He mentions many of these things in plural form in order, uh, no doubt, to express the various ways these evils in the heart manifest themselves. Number two, he mentions murders, murders which reveal themselves not only in deadly acts of violence, but in brutal words and verbal expressions of hatred. He mentions adulteries and fornications which reveal themselves not only in acts of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness, but also in filthy jokes and impure comments, verbal expressions of lust. He mentions thefts which reveal themselves not only in actual acts of theft, but in expressions of intent to steal or expressions of desire for that which belongs to someone else. And he mentions false witness which reveals itself not only in actual words of falsehood, but in misleading expressions of truth with the intent to deceive. And then finally, he mentions blasphemies. Another broad term that is certainly include the idea of speaking wrongly about God's character or misusing His name. But may also include the idea of slandering or railing against the image of God in other people. And what a horrible list. Jesus has here. And yet how short and brief an inventory of sins that can abide in our fallen hearts. As God Himself says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. These are things that abide in the heart. And the mouth is simply the bucket that draws them up from that deep well of evil within us. And that leads us to a third and final thing we learn from this passage is that this is a humbling principle in its spiritual implication. It's a humbling principle in its spiritual implication. Verse 20. These things, these are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. True defilement of a person before God comes from that which is already inside. And how horribly misguided it is to worry about the cleaning of hands when ignoring what's in the heart. And so here's the great problem that all man-made expressions of religion leave us with. I think we all know how to clean our hands. We know how to handle cleanliness and purity with respect to the external. 
We can wash everything on the outside. We can decorate it with gold and drape it in all clean white linen and surround it with all, with all kinds of things, with candles and incense and somber sacred music. But how can we clean our own hearts? How can we rid ourselves of the impurities within? Every time we try, all we do is bring forth more impurities. And so how then can religion ever make us pure before God? How can external religious practices ever keep us from that which truly defiles us? That which defiles us is actually an expression of that which is already in us. How could people with such defiled hearts ever hope to stand before God in purity? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. But it's not in religion. The Bible invites us to draw near to God through a relationship by faith in what He has done for us. That is, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the new and living way which He has consecrated for us through His death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We must not come to Him in the pride of religious performance. Look how many candles I've lit. Look how many times I've, I've done this or that. But we come to Him in humility of a deep need. Jesus illustrated this to us in the parable in Luke chapter 18 where He said two men went up into the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee and the other was a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as the other men or are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. Notice what he's talking about, the external things. I did this. I did that. How religiously pure he was. How confident he was in what he had done about the externals but how ignorant he was about the dark black hue of his own heart before God. How very much like so many who trust in the externals of religion to make themselves pure before God. But then by contrast, Jesus speaks about the other man, the man who by comparison was a very vile man in terms of religious externals. It goes on in Luke 18, verse 13, Jesus says, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift so much his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now there was a man who was humbled by the reality of what was in his heart. He had no hope but to cry out to God for mercy. And Jesus testified that it was he, rather than the religious pure man, who went home righteous in God's sight. And so this morning I trust that we remember that true defilement before God is a matter of what comes out of us, not what goes into us. It's not a matter of what we're doing. It's a matter of what's in our hearts and that we recognize the sin within us. And we cry 
even as the publican cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we need to place our sole trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, where our sins are paid for. Jesus paid it all. And I'm so thankful for that this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Before I pray, perhaps there's, perhaps there's someone here this morning who is trusting religion. Maybe you're trusting just your coming to church as an expression of, of how you can be pure. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad that you've availed yourself to the singing of the hymns of the faith the preaching of God's Word. But just coming to church will not cleanse you. It's what you do with what's inside. Perhaps Jesus has spoken to your heart this morning through His Word that you need to trust Him who paid for your sin. Father in heaven, I pray that as we close this service, I pray that every one of us are fully aware of what really matters to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the outward, the religions of this world, all the different ways that people claim to have to God. It's all about the way, the truth, and the life, which is through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that if there's someone here this morning who does not know Christ as their personal Savior, that today would be the day when they come to know Him and establish that relationship with Him. And for those of us who know Him and who have trusted Him, we pray, Lord, that You'll help us to remember these principles as well. Lord, help us to be faithful in our Bible reading, in our praying, in our communication, in our relationship with you. Help us to pursue and to seek that relationship. Help us to grow in our relationship with Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have even a greater understanding of what his word has to say to us and how we should live. and what, what we should be thankful for. Pray, Lord, as we close this service, that you'll do a work in our hearts. As we go from this place, you'll continue to do that work. Help us to be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name.